Hello and welcome aboard the Battleship Pretension. I am Tyler Smith. I am David Bax. And thank you for listening. L- you the listener. You the listener. Yes. <laughs> David, how you doing? Uh, I'm doing all right. Wow, um, man. You don't sound all right. Well, no, I'm, I'm fine. It's okay, not a big then. deal. All right. I, I wanted to bring something up. Okay. Do you ever, I'm sure you, I know I, I know the answer to this. Yeah. You, you ever watch movies on DVD kind of in segments? Oh, yeah. Um, now, I don't know if you have the same thing I have. If I start a movie, I got to see it through. Um, yes. Okay. I finally decided the other day to sit down and watch Atonement. I'd never seen it. All right. And I am not enjoying this film. And okay. I keep like, I'll watch like 20 minutes and be like, ah, I gotta, I'll, I'll pick this up tomorrow. And I'm, I'm, I'm about halfway through now. It's been like three days of this. Yeah. Uh, I hate to say it. Just this is, of course, my own opinion. Uh, y- you're, you're past the good point. Uh, <laughs> the f- uh, in my view, the first 40 minutes are great. Like, See, I hate it grated on my nerves. So, like, the like time gimmicks and mm. that fucking using the typewriter as a mm. music thing is so annoying to me. It annoys the shit out of me. It didn't bother me. I found it a nice uh, trend uh, transitionary transitional transitional. Thank you. A nice transitional thing. And and I thought it, the music worked well with the cinematography. And I think uh, Saoirse Ronan does a great job. And I, I liked that first. Well, I got to the part that's in the trailer that I liked <laughs> when, she, when she goes, Cecilia. <laughs> yeah. Um, but that and that's the part that Jen and myself really liked. I mean, we thought like, wow, this is a really good 40 minute film. Oh, there's two hours. Well, all right. Um, yeah. I, it's really annoying me. I'm just I'm just wondering. Uh, I would like to hear from you, the listeners. How do you feel about watching movies in segments? I mean, I'm sure it doesn't it's not the way a film is supposed to be watched. Right. And if I saw it in the theater, it's not like I could get up, you know. When I was, I, I've I've always done that ever since I was, uh, you know, a, a much younger uh, movie watcher, and that's how when I was a kid, that's that's how I could tell that a movie really got me is I couldn't turn it off. That's what uh-huh. Citizen Kane was was for me. That's yeah. how Twelve Angry Men was for me. Is I just I started watching them. I would uh, this was in Denver, and so I would I'd just be in the basement by myself watching this movie, and then I would stop it and i'd go uh probably do a little bit of my i did my homework in segments as well uh-huh. and uh you know or get something to eat and then return to it and watch maybe an hour and then go back uh every once in a while i'd run across a movie what it's just the nature of the movie i'm like this is why would i want to stop this 12 ang- i think 12 angry men especially is a movie that just yeah. doesn't lend itself to segments um, yeah but but what's strange because there are certain things that I feel like you and I are kind of uh, not necessarily purists, but like we don't like it when people talk during movies. And if somebody else <laughs> were to watch a movie in segments, I would probably say like, you know, that's probably not the way to watch a movie, <laughs> even though it has never really s- kept me from enjoying a movie. Yeah, I've done it my whole life. Also, when you and I watched Sands of Iwo Jima. Oh, yeah. We talked all the way through that thing, and we both really love the movie. It's great; I love that <laughs> movie. Um, but uh, yeah, so I think it all comes down to hypocrisy uh, on on <laughs> our part. Well, we're we've got our bona fides as movie lovers. <laughs> <laughs> the rules don't always apply to us. Absolutely, in the movie theater they do. Right, 
Right. Because there are other people there. Indeed. Yes. At home, I'll watch movies however the fuck I want. There you go. There you go. But uh, that's good thinking. Man, I, I'm not. I, but I'm. I feel like I'm locked in now. Like I have to finish this movie. Yeah. And I'm just not enjoying it. I've seen the Cecilia part. <laughs> I've seen the green dress, which is gorgeous. Yeah. And I don't know what else this movie have has. You seen the, uh, well, I've heard that the Dunkirk sequence is really cool. Yeah. Okay. Well. Yeah. All right. I, I think I'll be getting to that soon. I hope. Yeah. Anyway, so I just wanted to bring that up uh, as a topic of conversation. Put that out to the listeners. How do they feel about uh, watching movies at home alone in segments? Yeah, it's sometimes it's how it's how you have to watch it. You know, uh, yeah. I don't know. Doesn't do- it doesn't bother me that much if, of course, that's how you're uh, how you're going to do it. I will be watching someday. I I will. It's it's on my Netflix queue. I'm going to be watching the second half of In Bruges. I'm very excited. <laughs> um, granted. I may have to go back and start from the beginning because it's been about three months since I, since I saw the first half. Well, I told you what happened to me recently because I have the I have the on demand. Yeah. And so I started watching the original Three Ten to Yuma because I'd yeah. never I'd never seen it, yeah. and I got literally maybe fifteen twenty minutes away from the end, and then I had to leave the house. I had to go out, you know, and I was yeah. like, oh, I'll finish this, or you know, uh, over the weekend or whatever, and then. Uh, Turner Classic Movies took it off the on-demand. and I, <laughs> I, like, I, I have to go rent it, and I will also probably end up watching it from the beginning because it was an awesome movie. That was yeah. not something that I stopped, not like Atonement that I stopped because I didn't want to keep watching. I yeah. had a prior engagement, but I've, <laughs> I've seen almost all of 310 to Yuma. The, uh, the first time I watched uh, the original The Day the Earth Stood Still, I uh, <laughs> I was watching it, uh, and I watched it pretty much all the way through, but then, you know, like yourself, I had to, I had to stop and I was like, oh, man, this is a really great scene. Uh-huh. But I, I think I had to go to work or something. And so I'm like, all right. And so I stopped it and went to work, came back. And then I, it's like, all right, I will now. It's like, I'm going to finish the movie. I'm really excited. I turn it on. The guy gets in his spaceship and leaves. That's, <laughs> <laughs> there was 30 <laughs> seconds left. I didn't know that. And, uh, and I was just like. I mean, I guess I didn't feel cheated. It's not like I went out and paid for it again or yeah. anything. But it's just like, oh, well, all right then. I, I, that's important to know that he does leave, certainly. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, yeah, so that's – yeah, we don't really get into – I mean, aside from people talking, like, we don't really get into the uh, – we don't often get into, like, the mood. Not the mood, but, like, for example, like, lights on or off. Like, some people are very – you know, they have to have it one way. I mean, just – the the elements involved in watching a movie at home, you know, it's like, do you? It's like, do you eat while you're watching a movie? Because I know that you, David, when you go and see a movie in the theater, no, you will never, never eat. No, um, but uh, at home, at home, you will most of the time. <laughs> <laughs> right? Um, it's like I can't just be engaging two senses. Why? Uh, why not smell and taste as well? And it's funny you bring up the lights thing because if it's if it's at nighttime, the lights will be off. Mm-hmm. If it's a daytime, the lights will also be off. But I don't. I, I never close the blinds or anything. Like that's interesting. I, often there will be sunlight pouring in. I'll be watching a movie. Hmm. I don't. Uh, yeah. I, I. At this point, I used to. I used to uh, prefer lights on. And then living with you for several years, lights off. Uh, so yeah. thanks for that. I appreciate it. Because um, I also enjoy eating, and I and I also enjoy being able to see where I, I've I've often gotten my hands very dirty because I put them in the wrong place uh, <laughs> well, you, looking for yeah, my food. If I'm eating while I'm watching a movie, I'll put, like, not the main light on. I'll, I'll put, like, okay. I'll put like the kitchen light on so I can have some light pouring in or something, uh, you know, seeping in. Oh, nice. Yeah. 
Seems uh, like a, a really nice uh, effect. Yeah. But uh, now, David, but here's the thing. You know, the reason I like to keep the lights off, yeah. when, especially when watching a movie with another person, is because I don't want them to see me cry. Oh, uh, yes, <laughs> yes. But they know, David. You are a loud crier. You are a <laughs> sobber, David. Um, uh, that's not true. That's No, that's not true. He's very, uh, he's very serene. Um, <laughs> sorry. Uh, now, David, you've got plenty of reason to cry. Here's why. Um, yeah, you're, yeah, we're gonna change the mood here, aren't we? Yeah, sorry. Um, do you want to do you want to mention the question that you had a moment ago? Like a couple of people have passed away, and yeah, <sighs> no, I don't know. I don't want it to sound mean, right? I don't want it to be mean because it was actually quite tragic what happened to Nast- uh, Natasha Richardson. Yes. Um, that said, I really, I mean. I've seen some of the movies that she was in. Yeah, I don't really know who she is. Yeah, I don't... Uh, I knew the name. I knew that that was the name of an actress. But, I, again, I feel mean even saying that. Like, right. like Because we're going to talk about Ron Silver in a second. And right. I don't want it to sound like we're saying Ron Silver's death is somehow more tragic because we right. know who he is. Right, not at all. Um, but it's just, uh, like, for the amount... I, I think I think perhaps the amount of press that, that she has been getting is a function of her having died so young. She was only 45. Uh-huh. I mean, it really was a tragic thing. Um, and But, like, also, like, in Entertainment Weekly, she got, like, what, like a two- or three-page spread, and it's just like, ah, I feel... I haven't gotten my new issue yet. Oh, I have. It just occurred to me. What do you think of that? And I got two Newsweeks for some reason. <laughs> um, but, like... And, that's, and, yeah, I mean, it's hard to say this without sounding mean, but, like, if you wanted to go on her career alone... She would not have, uh, like, I don't know. She wouldn't. She she doesn't. Uh, she doesn't deserve a two page spread. You know, um, right? Except, no, yeah. Except that's what you're saying. In, in Entertainment Weekly, in the right. Yeah. Okay. Right. Um. And uh, except that you know she was Vanessa Redgrave's daughter, and mm-hmm. then um, and she was Liam Neeson's wife. Um. And and I'm sure she was a, a fine actress, as David has said. I mean, I even though. We've seen movies that she was in. I don't really remember her, not to imply that she was a bad actress or anything, but it's just, you know, she was uh, not a character actress, but she certainly wasn't, she didn't really, like, carry movies or anything like that. Um, and so um, so I, I just wanted to acknowledge that, yes, we do know, <laughs> I wanted to talk more about Ron Silver, but yes, we are. We do know that Natasha Richardson passed away. We are, of course, very sorry to hear it. It's uh, just following it in the news. It really sounded quite awful. Yeah. Um. But uh, but yeah. So we're not just. I'm sorry if it seems like we're skimming over it. Uh. But uh, as far as actors uh who had an impact on us as film fans. Yeah. Ron Silver. It had a much larger impact, certainly on me, and I think on I think probably on on you as well, David, because you're a fan of The West Wing. Um, yeah, he and he was great on The West Wing. Yeah, but um, although, uh, uh, for Ron Silver, <laughs> for me, I will because of just the age at which I saw it, I will mm-hmm. always first think of Time Cop. <laughs> I, I know that, I know that's silly, but it's just like I thought that movie was fucking awesome when I was in middle school. Yeah. And I watched it a lot. And you see that scar appear on his face. Yeah, pretty awesome. I actually, it was on like <laughs> Sci-Fi the, 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 again the other day. I was just like flipping through channels, or I turned on my TV and Sci-Fi was on because I had watched like Battlestar Galactica the night before, and Time Cop was on, and I was like, "Well, probably in tribute, David." No, this was oh, a few weeks ago. Oh. Yeah, and uh, I ended up just watching a whole lot, a whole lot of Time Cop again. <laughs> 
Um, but so yeah, Time Cop is what I first think of him in. But uh, the the roles that uh, I think I love most of his, apart from The West Wing, mm-hmm. is well, I know which one you're going to say. I think. Uh, yes, but I'm going to, I'm going to mention another one on the principle that yes, we all know I'm going to say Reversal of Fortune. Yeah, Reversal of Fortune was a big one for me because when I saw it, I knew him as a bad guy. Right. You know, and it was cool to see him play. Right. Uh, a good guy, essentially. Mm -hmm. Uh, but then got turned sort of back around and thought of him as one of the most perfect bad guys ever when I saw Blue Steel. Which I still haven't seen. And I hear he's, he's amazing in it. Yeah, I mean, the, (coughs) it's, uh. Uh, I'm drawing a blank on the director's name. We've talked about her a million times. She made Point Break. Uh, the fuck? Catherine Bigelow? Yes, Catherine Bigelow. Okay. We've talked about many times, I yeah. think, that I'm a Catherine Bigelow fan. Yeah. <laughs> Apparently. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, not evidenced by the fact that I couldn't remember her name just now. Yeah. But um, um, Blue Steel is a really rad movie. I mean, it's not going <laughs> to... You know, it's not going to make you think deep thoughts about life and right. uh life in the universe and everything but um <laughs> uh it's a really cool movie and he is such a perfect bad guy in it i tell you the the thing that got me is um reading his, his bio i i knew that he had he had come from uh from the stage but i didn't know that he had won a tony for being in speed the plow oh i didn't know that either and it's one of those things like almost every actor who not every actor but like Several actors who kind of made their bones on stage performing David Mamet would off would often like wind up performing it on film. Mm-hmm. He never did, and man, that would have been great. I would yeah. love to see him play a Mamet role. Like yeah. that's just such a because he's just the the reason that I think he he makes good makes for good villainy is that he's smart. He he like he cannot hide how smart he is. Uh-huh. Like he he does have. You just know it's like, oh man, this guy might be the smartest guy in the room. Like, no matter what role he's playing, um, and uh, it applies to Time Cop, it applies to The West Wing. And I got to tell you, David, it's a shame that you stopped watching The West Wing when you did, because he shows up again. Yeah, I, I noticed. I was actually looking up his IMDb page after he mm-hmm. died, and, uh, and it said he did 19 episodes total of The West Wing, and I was like, oh, he must be in it a lot after season four. Yeah, because he plays. Uh, Alan Arkin's, uh, I'm sorry, Alan Alda's um, campaign manager, and and it's and it's interesting because uh, first off, ha- ha- bringing that character back because we were familiar with him as one of the kind of the good guys uh, in the first campaign. Yeah, and but now, still with still kind of the ability to be a smug prick. That's why I said kind of. Yeah, uh, because. But in, again, with the, with the the intelligence thing, it, whenever he's a smug prick, you know he's still probably right. Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. Because like it, you see in uh, in uh, Alan Alda's campaign, and the fact that he is a part of it instantly like gives the campaign credibility. Like when uh-huh. they really, the makers of the West Ring, West Wing really tried to uh, make it a lot more even keel between the two candidates uh, in season seven, and adding him to that campaign instantly, you're like, oh. Well, I guess, I guess there's something here for yeah. this guy, um, and uh, <coughs> excuse me. And when some of the other people in the campaign, played by uh, Patricia Richardson of Home Improvement and Stephen Root, uh, really, yeah, I gotta watch, gotta more, watch this. more West Wing. <laughs> um, 
when they don't take uh, Ron Silver's suggestions, you just inst- instinctively are like, oh, well, y- you really should. He's, he's right. Don't you, reali- <laughs> don't you realize that this is Ron Silver playing this character? He's right. <laughs> what are you, stupid? Um, but, like, and so, like, it's that kind of intelligence that I think he brought to, he brought to Reversal of Fortune wonderfully because um, there's a character who is, he's very smug. He plays smugness pretty well too. Yeah. Um. He he play the the character is very smug and he's just he's not what you expect because he's just you get the impression that like he may be charging hundreds of dollars per hour for his you know legal fees, but he does just seem like a regular kind of a regular guy um, who happens to yes I am also a brilliant legal mind as it turns out. Yeah. Um. And he's and that's the thing is like. You know, Jeremy Irons plays a very cold, collected person, and uh, you know, Glenn Close is when she's not in a coma, she is uh, playing a character who's just kind of, who's also rather cold and collected I when see. she's not going kind of crazy. Yeah. So, so the movie really the 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 movie's injected with life when it's him, yeah. when it's Ron Silver because he's very animated and very passionate. Um. But the other movie that I want to mention uh, about him is uh, it's called Find Me Guilty. Oh, which uh, I never saw. And it's it, it's an okay movie. It's not great, um, but it's Sidney Lumet, who I'm a big fan of. And it stars superstar Vin Diesel. Right? That's right. Uh, <laughs> in a, in a, a bad wig, and he's put on weight. But he's he's fin- first off, he's phenomenal. Now let me stop for movie. a second before we move on. Okay. How much are you looking for forward to Fast and the Furious Four? I mean, just Fast and Furious, I believe it's called. Can you believe that after all these years, super mega stars Vin Diesel and Paul Walker are back on the screen together? Well, I mean, can you believe that it's been a mere ten years since they were just, you know, B-list actors? I know. Well, and and when you (laughs) think, come a long way because Vin Diesel and Paul Walker. What must? Here's what I'm curious about: What must have been in that script to entice them back? Yeah, they must have been like, oh my gosh, I. There's more to this character. I got to come back. Yeah, because they could be doing anything. Yeah. Anything. It's a big selling point for me that these two mega superstars are back on the screen together <laughs> in the same movie in the franchise that made them. Oh man, good times! Uh, well done, David. That was uh, I, I'm soaking in sarcasm. <laughs> um, but uh, what was I? Oh yeah. Uh, so find me guilty. Um, it's it's a, a courtroom drama in which uh, there's and it's based entirely on a true story and. Basically, a whole bunch of mobsters uh, are, you know, being put on trial, and one of them, played by uh, Vin Diesel, mega superstar, mm-hmm. um, decides to defend himself, and he he's already in jail, so he doesn't even care, and so he just he he just like turns the trial into a kind of a circus, and it's I'm fascinated by it because it's just like yeah, this is most of most of the courtroom scenes are taken directly from the transcript, uh-huh. and it's like oh wow, that's really that's really awful. Um, <laughs> but uh, but um, Ron Silver plays the uh, the judge, and the this case wound up being the longest case in American history, um, <laughs> the longest trial in American history, and and he's presiding over it, and there's a weird circus going on over here with this weird mobster. And a prosecutor who's just a total freaking prideful windbag. And Ron Silver, because he always has that air of being the smartest guy in the room, 
he just looks so exasperated all the time. Uh-huh. Just like, but not in a, not in like a stupid comical goofy way. But he just really, you really get the impression that he just wants to tell everybody to shut up and just get on with what they're trying to say, as opposed to like all the rhetoric. And um, but there's a scene where um, Vin Diesel he finds out that his mother has passed away, and the judge is the one who, who breaks the news to him, and. I think of Ron How- uh, Ron uh, Silver as like a very steely kind of guy who can who can play like a lot of energy, but I don't I, could, I don't think I could ever I don't think he could, he would ever make me cry. Mm-hmm. Um, but I haven't seen that many of his films, so who knows? Um, but the amount of sensitivity that he shows um, when breaking the news to Vin Diesel it's really it's really a touching scene. Um, both the way Vin Diesel's character deals with it. But also just the way the judge, like, this guy may be a defendant, but he also is a person and he does love somebody that just died. And it's just, it's a really good scene and and you really don't expect a scene like that to come from Ron Silver. You you expect a certain, you know what to expect from him and then you're like, oh no, actually he does have, he does have more, uh, more levels than, yeah. than I thought. And so... Um, and his honestly, his death sounds pretty rough too. He had yeah. esophageal cancer for two years. That sounds yeah horrifying. But uh, anyway, so yes, well, we will miss Ron Silver. And uh, we spent a lot of time here, yeah. but uh, but you know it was worth it for both Ron Silver and Natasha Richardson. Absolutely, we, we mourn her passing as well. Yeah. So uh, let's get into it, shall we? Indeed. This is the second uh, this is sort of a companion piece to last episodes yeah or maybe last episode is a companion piece to this i'm not going to hold one over the other i'm not going to show favoritism all these episodes are my children really <laughs> oh okay that's the first i've heard of this <laughs> um so we're going to talk about, last week we talked about filmmakers overcoming the restrictions or the obstacles that are placed in front mm. of them or, or upon them um and so today we're going to continue in that trend by talking specifically about the the Hayes Code, yeah. which is um the biggest example of that in American film history and the biggest yeah. and, and longest lasting. Yeah. Um, and I I don't know I, I, a lot of our listeners probably went to film school or at least are interested in film enough that they know about the Hayes Code. So this might be treading some familiar ground for you but we're going to do a little bit of history lesson because it is actually pretty fascinating yeah to me um and and also i think that like for example uh jen and i were watching i think what were we watching i think we were watching uh the thin man um uh and jen asked me a question which was she's like is that how people slept back then like the two beds the two twin beds in one room and i was like you know, I don't know because here's the thing: every other film from that era looks like this too, and so yeah. there's really. And she's like, "I need to talk to my grandparents about that." And if she asked her grandparents, and the answer is, is of course, no. You know, and it's just uh, now that uh, that awesome Seinfeld episode aside, uh-huh. when uh, uh, the Costanzas decide that this is the way to sleep, uh-huh. um, like it's. It, that that in itself, that in like the whole toilet thing, uh-huh. um, in which you couldn't show a toilet in a bathroom, um, like well, no, was that? But that wasn't part of the Hayes Code. That was a TV thing, 
right? Wasn't it? Well, I think it's in movies as well. Oh, okay. Um, but uh, but don't quote me on that. But I think but I know that Psycho was a big deal because it was the first film to show like a toilet or oh, like okay. really have it play a role because a character actually flushes something down the toilet. Yeah. Um, but the uh, but that to me like the bed thing is is everything that the Hayes Code. It's all the ridiculousness of the Hayes Code in one example, which is just like married characters and they can't even share the same bed. And um, for an entire generation of film fans, they may think that's actually how it was. Um, what are you doing? <laughs> I was playing with the cat while we are no, trying to No, the cat record. is playing with something noisy near us. Yeah, and, and just keeps what bringing you, it back. You, yeah, he keeps bringing it back and you keep throwing it again. Sorry. He, thi- he thinks you're playing with him, not trying to get rid of him. Ugh, where's my spray bottle? Um, All right, Dave, go ahead. So anyway, you talk about the ridiculousness, and of course, I mean, it, it is completely ridiculous. Yeah. But uh, it's sort of film wouldn't be American film. The American film industry wouldn't be what it is today, for mm-hmm. better or worse, if it weren't for the Hayes Code, yeah. because the the sort of moral reaction to what was going on in Hollywood in the twenties, you know, I mean, and it was this was going on all over the place, but Hollywood the way it's reported on and everything is sort of got the it became like the um the the standard bearer for right. the decadence of the 20s yeah. you know and uh enough people were kind of shocked and offended by what was going on these stories like Fatty Arbuckle of course being the big one but all these other things that were happening mm-hmm. um that the the st- the studios essentially deciding to step in and police themselves was kind of a preemptive strike yeah because there was a there was a fear and i don't know i don't know how likely this was to come true but it had happened in other countries that they were afraid of federal regulation right because there are certain because uh, you know it's been a it's been several years since film school dave and so there are certain things that i didn't remember uh-huh. and one was that uh in there was a, an early ruling that said that Movies were a business and were not part of I forgot like about free that. speech. Yeah, because it was a business and not an art. It was not subject to. The, it was not uh, yeah. covered by the First Amendment, which is cr- crazy. Like I, I, you know, I'm sure that they had mentioned that in our history of film class, but I, I certainly didn't remember it. And then reading it now, it's like I, I, I so sometimes I really wish that I had like lived in that time or was kind of more like I wish there were documentaries made about that. Uh-huh. Because I'm fascinated with that mentality, like just when movies were really starting, when it's clear, like, oh, these aren't going away, um, and then it's and then they had to actually define it as, yes, this actually counts as free speech, which didn't happen for a while. Yeah, but well, I mean, they kind of uh, they they managed to duck the ramifications of that ruling, I think, right. by policing themselves, right? You know, uh, by by setting up the the Hayes Code, yeah. Um, which was uh, uh, established in 1930. Mm-hmm. Um, and now we, <laughs> a listener sent us an article uh, that uh, that I read. It was really fascinating, but um, it goes into a lot of sort of gray areas and stuff like that. Um, so I'm just going to go with the sort of the more reductive version of the, of history. Okay. Uh, because it's just faster. <laughs> okay. Yeah, okay. So it was set up in 1930. Um, it wasn't enforced all that strongly. Yeah. 
uh, until about 1934. I mean, it was it's, right. it's a gradual thing, as per this article that I read. But uh, it's it's easy both for our purposes and for dige- digesting it pers- purposes to understand that when when Joseph Breen took over mm-hmm. the Hayes office in 1934, yeah, that's kind of when it really when the code really got its teeth. Yeah, yeah, it's. Uh I mean, it's. So I, 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 I qualified the shit out of that because I want that listener to know that yes, I read the article. I understand there's much more to it than that. It's yeah. not as as pat as all that. Yeah. But uh, it's it's easy for our purposes to to start following the actual like code era. Yeah. In 1934. I think I'll, uh, on the website, perhaps under the under the blog section, maybe I'll put a, a link to that article because yeah. it, it was it was uh, very comprehensive and very and very interesting. Yeah, it was a good article. Um, but uh, now just to uh, just to let everybody know what we're talking about, uh, you can you can go to Wikipedia right now and follow along if you like. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Tyler has the Wikipedia printout in front of him. Um, but but uh, uh, I'm not going to read uh, like what people have written. I'm going to read like the actual principles from the the code because just just some of them just no just yeah just uh, just these 3 here um one is uh no picture shall be produced that will lower the moral standards of those who see it hence the sympathy of the audience should never be thrown to the side of crime wrongdoing evil or sin okay the second one correct standards of life subject only to the requirements of drama and entertainment shall be presented and then number three, law, natural or human, shall not be ridiculed, nor shall sympathy be created for its violation. That's, uh, in reading it, I'll, I will say this really quick, um, because uh, this is this is a, another episode that we've already recorded, but in reading it, I'm fascinated because just like, so, d- does the Christian film industry know that the Hays Code isn't around anymore? <laughs> because it's exactly, it's exactly this, with the exception that number two, which says, correct standards of life, subject only to the requirements of drama and entertainment shall be presented. I, I, I think they even igno- uh, ignore that middle part there. Yeah. Um, but it's, th- there's some, some questions with the, with the Hays Code and the way it was, was implemented because to tie it into last week, um, <laughs> the way people got around it, or or the way that it influenced film, the way just the way film was made at all, mm-hmm. it's 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 a weird thing because it's like, well, I don't like the Hayes Code on principle, but it's sh- it served a purpose that it didn't mean to serve, which was to make films almost more creative. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's like all of a sudden this little film where it's just like. All right, everybody, let's do this. Uh, we can't do that. Oh, um, okay. Well, let's, through the miracle of, uh, you know, suggestion, uh-huh. let's do this instead. Um, I, I, one, of my, one of the big uh, examples for me is the original Cape Fear, where, um, <coughs> which is a film that I know you're not, a huge, you're not a huge fan of, right? No, I like it. Okay, all right. I'm, I forget who, who saw it and just didn't care for it at all but yeah, don't uh, point that finger at me i'm sorry i like that film okay um but when i was working at blockbuster and i no longer cared in fact i believe i had put in my two weeks at this point 
um, I the on the monitors where you're supposed to show preview tapes. I was just throwing in movies because uh, I didn't care, but I didn't put in like anything horrible. Right. I put in like classic. Also, films. you were stealing Snickers bars by the pound. If I recall. by the pound and selling them <laughs> door to door because I got to make money somehow, David. Um, and so, so I put so I put Cape Fear on the original Cape Fear um, because like well you know it's it's an old film made during the Hayes Code so. Uh, there's not going to be anything inappropriate that's going to be playing store-wide. Uh-huh. Um, and then there's a scene where Robert Mitchum is going after uh, Gregory Peck's wife. I believe the actress, I think her name is Polly Bergen. Um, he's, it's just the two of them in this room. And Polly Bergen is like breathing so heavily um, because he's going to hurt her. Uh-huh. And it's just and just the breathing just continues. It's really loud, and it's really the like. There's some small Bernard, you know, th- the Bernard Herman music. It doesn't. It's not really bombastic. It's just kind of there. Really, the only noise you're hearing is her heavy breathing. Panting? Would you say panting? You could go so far as to say, and for for like a solid two minutes. Uh-huh. And so like I'm just sitting at work, and I was just like. If somebody's walking around, they might think that there's something very wrong happening or like going <laughs> on uh, on these monitors. Even though it was made during a time when they they couldn't show rape, they couldn't imply rape. Forty six, sixty two. I always do that. What? We've had this conversation before. What about that? Uh, I always think Cape Fear was forty six. It could be. We've, no, we've literally had this conversation on the podcast before. Really? <laughs> that I always do that with Cape Fear. I think. Oh, that movie's from '46, right? No, that's it's 1962. That's very specific. Why? Why '46? I have no idea. <laughs> I always sorry. do that. I'm sorry. Um, um, yeah, '62. Well, that's that's post Josephine, which we'll get into later. Yeah, right. But yeah, it is right. still code. Yeah, and uh, and I recently actually bought the uh, the original Cape Fear uh, on DVD, and it's got a really nice featurette in which the director, who is uh, still alive, he uh, talked about some of the restrictions that they placed because at the time it was like this cutting edge. Film and one of the things is you can't imply rape, you can't do anything like that, and so it's like okay, well we won't say rape, we won't even have any kind of physical action to imply that this is this is something that could happen between these characters. But that breathing, that heavy panting, I mean that that scene is like really like you're you're on the edge of your seat, but you're also just like this is uncomfortable, like this is really making me uncomfortable. Like, yeah. granted, an actual it doesn't even make sense that it would be 1946 <laughs> if I look at the cast. Why do I always do that? <laughs> I don't know, David. <sighs> I've moved on. It's like a weird like form of very specific odd dyslexia where not not even I'm not switching them around, but it's like I know in my head when I think of Cape Fear, I know it's either 46 or 62, and I go, "Okay, I know I was wrong last time, I guess, so I'm going to go with 46 this time." <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, uh, maybe next time, maybe we'll, in 30 yeah. episodes, I'll mention it again. <coughs> and uh, if you get it wrong again, then uh, <laughs> I think I need to find a different co-host. But um, but like that to me, like where it's just they didn't I mean, it wasn't even really that this sounds almost insulting. It's not re- even really that creative. It's not a creative decision, but it's just like they didn't have to have her breathe that way. Yeah. They didn't have to boost the audio of her bre- breathing that way. But it's just like it's like if we can't have this. How are we gonna put? How are we gonna have the audience know exactly what's going on or what could happen? It's like let's do this, and it was just it was a very simple practical solution to well, this is what we want to imply, but we can't even really imply it that much. So yeah. let's. But 
we still need to get the message across. And yeah. Cape Fear is, I don't know, like I watched it when I was like 12 or 13, uh-huh. I think with my parents, and it seems like even my parents would have been like, oh, I don't know if my kids should be watching this. <laughs> um, but uh, I'm sorry, David, I've been, I've been talking for a while, and I had... I had some other questions, but I'll I'll ask those in in, uh, in a few minutes. Go ahead, David. Okay. Well, I just I just want to mention another example. Uh, speaking of rape, oh, okay. there's uh, there's Gone with the Wind, which is very much oh, yeah. in the Joseph Breen mm-hmm. uh, era yep. reign, if you will. Oh my. Um, thirty-four to fifty-four. I know those fucking dates. There you go. Um, <laughs> but uh, I guess no, I've never read the book Gone with the Wind, but I guess uh, uh, as I understand it, in the book, it's very clear that at one point. I mean, uh, you know, even though they're married, not I shouldn't have to qualify that, but I do yep. with some some people who are ignorant. Um, Rhett mm-hmm. rapes Scarlet. Yeah, and the scene in the movie is it. it uh, he he said it's it's <laughs> it seems obvious to mm-hmm. me now uh, to any I think anyone now what's happening. Yeah. but he just he says like you're not going to tell me no tonight, and then he throws her over his shoulder and like carries up the stairs. Yeah, that's it, it's uh, something like that. I can't remember exactly. I haven't seen it in a while. Yeah. But um that's just a great a good example of something we were talking about last week where it's like they get they can't see the forest for the trees. Like, mm-hmm. okay, no one says the word rape. There's no rape actually happening on the screen. Right. And uh you know, and I guess it, it, the old-fashioned gender politics says that well, if they're married, it's probably not rape, which is not true. I would say that's not true. So. I've become so defensive about any sort of like gender or sex <laughs> issues now because I because I get called out on it. You sure do. Uh, That's what happens when you define yourself that way uh, early on, David. Yeah, uh, yeah, I regret that. But um, so I just wanted to bring up that example. What what sort of questions did you have? Well, um, in regards to how the Hayes Code um, influenced filmmaking, I found myself wondering about the impact that the, that the Hayes Code had. On film noir. Oh, good. I was going to bring that up okay. because, well, I don't, I'm not even talking. I don't even know about the impact, but just the fact that film noir, which is like the first and to this date still the greatest, or you know, or most important American film movement. Yeah. You know. Um. It happened during the Hayes Code. Yeah. And uh, these are really dark stories. This is like reflecting the. Po- the post-war, like right. you know, existentialism of the American psyche. Right. This is not positive stuff. So yeah, how did a yeah how did they get around it? How do they make those films? Yeah. And uh, what does it say about our sort of thesis or other people's thesis that great films come out of you know periods of restriction that that these films were made then? I, you know, I'm thinking the ex- episode the episode the example I wanted to bring up was. Uh, Robert Seeldmack's version of The Killers, okay. the, the first one, because I've never seen the later one. Right, I haven't seen either one, actually. Oh, really? Okay. Well, um, The Killers is based on a short story by Ernest Hemingway, which I have not read. Right. Um, but it, essentially, the first 20 minutes of the film are the short story pretty much exactly. Even, like, almost the dialogue is pretty much the same from mm-hmm. what I've read. Again, never read it. Right. Uh, and it's... You know, I know I'm going to spoil it for you here. Okay. <laughs> but you should have seen it by now. Yeah, fair enough, yeah. You know when The Killers came out? 46. 46, I, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, uh, so what ha- two 
hired killers come to this diner and they're looking for someone named the Swede. And that's mm-hmm. not his name, that's his nickname. Right. And it's uh it's Burt Lancaster yep. and he uh sort of he runs from them and then they find him in another place and it's like twenty minutes long and then at the twenty minute mark they kill him. Okay. And that's when the Ernest Hemingway story ends. Yeah. In 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 Hemingway's story you don't know you don't it's it's almost completely free of context. You don't really know why these guys are after this guy. Right. So, uh, A, to make it a feature-length movie, and B, to kind of comply with the w- what you were reading earlier from the Hayes Code, yeah. that, that uh, you know, you shouldn't uh, sympathize with a criminal or whatever. You sh- that They invent a backstory that shows you why he got killed, which is because of a bank robbery. You find out he was a criminal. Okay himself yeah you yeah. know it's it's it it, it 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 expands upon the moral it's not just like two guys killing a guy it's right. someone you know getting karmically their right just Get, desserts getting what's what's coming to them yeah that's the that that's kind of the 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 question is like it not even a question but just uh you know something to to think about the when i think of fil- film noir one of the big things aside from the 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 visual element is thematically i'd say nine times out of ten the whoever the protagonist is uh he doesn't get away with it he or she doesn't get away with it yeah they, well can like you think of any examples where he does i mean <laughs> uh, he, no yeah because um, the only example to. i can think of like maltese falcon sam spade is the protagonist but when you think about it, he hasn't done a lot of things wrong, but he certainly doesn't wind up happy because he's fallen in love with a woman who has killed somebody. Yeah. And she doesn't get away with it. Yeah. Um, and it's that kind of, you know, I mean, the killing, double indemnity. I mean, all of them. Yeah, out I mean, of the past. Of out of the past. I mean, everybody gets what's coming to them. And, and that's, the Hayes Code required it. If somebody, if somebody did something that, and it's like, oh, I've, I've good, I have so much money now. And, I'm, uh-huh. and I got away with it. Well, that glorifies the criminal element of some kind or yeah. a, vi- a violation of the law. Uh, and, and we can't have that. Yeah. So they have to, they have to die. And it's such, it's such a part of what film noir is. Yeah. And, it's, and it's, it's a deeper, there's an even deeper thing of just like, it's not just a greed. It's often uh, men following right. women yeah. down the wrong path. And it's sort of yeah. like, it's, yeah, don't be greedy, don't you know Lust. be a crime. Yeah. yeah, don't be a criminal, but yeah, also don't think with your dick. <laughs> you know, I mean, <laughs> that uh, was in the Hayes Code actually. That exact yeah. phrasing. It's <laughs> characters must strange. not think with their dicks. Um, the postman always rings twice is a great example yeah, of that. Abs- yes, Perfect absolutely. Example. Um, and it's just like which I watch now. I, I, I keep interrupting you. That's all but right. um, you know, I guess at the time, or or at least by the standards of the Hayes Code. Um, the wo- um, who's the woman in Postman Always Rings Twice? This is Lana Turner, I think so. I think so as well. Uh, uh, it's been a while since I've seen. We're a couple of idiots. Yeah, but I mean, she's the corrupting influence, mm-hmm. you know, and um, and that's certainly the way it was painted. And I, and maybe if I had seen it when I was a yet a, a less savvy film watcher or just uh, less of a developed mind, that's yeah. how I would have seen it. Yeah, is that she's essentially a bad guy, right? But uh, she's actually a really, really sympathetic and really sad character in yeah. that movie, you yeah. know, and that's uh, uh, and that's that's just a, a perfect example of something that they sort of snuck in because yes, she does 
she does crime, <laughs> and she is, and she is punished for it by right. uh, people who have seen that movie, right? Anyway, I, I don't know. So. Um, but uh, uh, so yeah, it's again, it's another example of that. Like on the surface thing, on the surface, she's the corrupting influence who corrupts this, you know, poor guy mm-hmm. uh, who just made the mistake of being too greedy and falling in love with the wrong woman. Yeah. Uh, but you also see that, you know, uh, underneath the surface, you see that she's, you understand her motivations for being the way she is. You sympathize with them in in a way that the Hayes Code would not have explicitly been able to endorse. Right, right. And it's, and what's great about uh, what filmmakers, uh, you know, uh, who made film noir, like what they managed to do is they used the, the requirement of, you know, getting what's coming to you, getting what you deserve, they use that to create sympathy. Like, if so, if a character, like, you know, robs a bank and then gets away with it, then it's like, okay, well, that's the end of the story. That was kind of fun. But if the character doesn't get away with it, somehow you're more sympathetic to them than, it, than if they did. Yeah. And so that's something that... And it adds to the tragic element, you know. And, of course, even if the character has done things wrong, like... With they never intended this, you know, they never intended for it to go this far down the line, or whatever the case may be. It's 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 gotten out of their hands, and now of course they're paying the price for it. Like that element is, which is so key to film noir. It's what we think of uh, mm-hmm. when we think of film noir, and and at this point, I don't know. Like when I think of when I think of like any any film noir of the time. I'm trying to think like, well, okay, let's imagine the Hayes Code was not in existence. Would some of them have, would some of those characters have gotten away with it? Do you think they would have? Or do you think the inherent fatalism of the story and of the time in which they are making films, the post-war thing, do you think, do you think that just... I think they would have occasionally gotten away with it because okay, um, that's probably what people wanted to think is right. that, is that, uh, given everything that's going on in their lives, maybe they can find an easy way out. Right. Um, but it's, I think the majority of them uh, still would not have gotten away with it. Yeah. And, and so like probably the, the, the films in which you watch and you're like, uh, I could see the characters. I could, I think they probably could have gotten away with this if it weren't a function of the, the Hayes code. Like those films were probably okay films that were made much better by the way they ended, I, I, <laughs> I'd say uh, one is uh, the killing, which is a Stanley Kubrick film, um, which is a good film. I mean, it's got uh, the way that he approaches like the heist uh, yeah. drama is, is is interesting. The killing but, always makes me feel like one of those like like if someone who's like a fan of a band, but you're just like, oh, I like their earlier work better. Like the killing is, is probably still my favorite Stanley Kubrick film. Uh, yeah, it has grown in my head. <laughs> I'll say that, um, and I really like it, but and. But it's like everything about it, just you get the feeling it's like these guys are supposed to get away, or at least one of them is. Like uh-huh. Sterling, Sterling Hayden, I think he's supposed to get away. <laughs> huh. Like when I was thinking of when I was when I was reading the, you know, the idea of like you cannot you cannot show somebody getting away with violating the law. Doing crime. Doing crime, <laughs> as David says. Thank you. Uh, the first the first film that popped into my head was The Killing because it's just like. It has all the makings of guys getting away with it, and uh-huh. then they and then they don't. And the fact that they don't, you're just like, oh, like 
it adds the fr- like the frustration uh, factor is so thick with that because you're like oh now the oh now the money's blowing all over the place in the wind yeah ah well I'm gonna um, if you're done with film noir here I want uh, I want to I want I want to segue into something else all right uh, well there's another film in which people don't get away with it mm-hmm. is uh, is Rope Hitchcock's oh, yeah. Rope um, which is a, an okay movie. Um, with a uh, great performance and Jimmy Stewart. Yeah. That's my that's my uh one sentence review of that film. Okay. <laughs> um but there's a there's another element to that movie that 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 comes up a little bit in, in the code. Um Okay, the Rope the story of Rope is inspired by the Leopold and Loeb murders and it's um I don't know if it's known or just well accepted that the actual Leopold and Loeb were gay. Yeah. And uh, I think Rope is a a movie that I, I think it implies I- in subtle ways that these are uh, these guys are not just school chums, right? Right. Uh, and that that sort of thing happened a lot mm. during the Code, um, because I'm going to be stereotypical again here, yeah. but um, we're talking about uh, a creative community. Yeah. There's a lot of gay people in Hollywood. Yeah, a lot of. Uh, I, I I don't I'm yeah I'm being stereotypical again, but it's frankly that's a stereotype that uh, is more or less true. Yeah. I used to do a lot of theater, you know, from yeah. the tech side at least. But uh, and of course you were gay during that time. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> now you've gotten over it. And no, but I mean that that stereotype's true. There's a lot of gay people in the theater. Yeah. So there's a lot of and there's a lot of gay people in Hollywood, and that's yeah. still true. You yeah. know. I mean, look at t- yeah, never mind. Um, <laughs> but uh, so uh. I'm not going to go into it too much, but I, I would recommend anyone uh, rent the celluloid closet if you haven't mm. seen it. It's yeah. really great. Um, but uh, I want to talk about one uh, one film that is not that widely seen, but it's a film by Robert Aldrich, mm-hmm. uh, who made Kiss Me Deadly. Yep. Um, it's called The Big Knife, and it's based on a play. Mm. Um, I think I've talked about this on this on this uh, podcast before because uh, it was, I think. I think it was either the screenplay was written by Clifford Odets or the hmm. original play was, but he hmm. was he was a blacklisted. This movie has so much going on underneath the surface, yeah, because uh, it's a uh, essentially a blacklisted writer coming up with a story, more or less. Um, it's about a famous Hollywood guy, a famous actor, yeah, Hollywood guy. <laughs> that was worse than do crime. You know, this is our 105th <laughs> episode, David. Yeah. Um, Words like actor <laughs> should not elude you. <laughs> but I, I, I'm trying to imply more than that, you know, okay. that he's he's not just an actor. He's a big star. Okay. Okay. And it's time for his contract to be renewed with the studio. Yeah. The head of the studio is played by Rod Steiger. Oh, awesome. Um, uh, Jack Palance plays this uh, hmm. this lead guy, Charlie Castle, if I, if I remember correctly. And then... There's uh, Charlie Castle's, uh, so his contract is up, it's time to renew, and his wife, paid, played by Ida Lupino, hmm. um, who's sort of a free spirit, if you will, she's trying to convince Charlie Castle, like, look, you've got enough money, the studio is using you, they're not good people. It's essentially, like, she's sort of the voice of the movie. She's saying, right. the people who make Hollywood movies are bad, <laughs> you know, yeah. leeches, they're greedy uh and you know amoral people yeah. <laughs> that's like the theme of this movie so that's yeah. for one thing that's kind of fun should have mentioned that in episode 99 <sighs> well, which one was that movies about filmmaking in hollywood oh yeah yeah that uh, i should have mentioned this movie 
Um, so there's all that's going on. And then there's this other woman who's trying, who wants to have an affair with Charlie Castle. But then while this is going on, there's like Charlie, the, the, the Charlie Castle character. I, I I haven't seen it in a while, so I'm hoping I'm getting that name right. Yeah. But um, he has like a uh, a sort of stocky but well built personal assistant mm-hmm. who like is often shirtless. <laughs> <laughs> like it, all this stuff is happening in this one movie, The Big Knife. It's I think anyone I, I don't even know if it's on DVD yet actually, because mm-hmm. um, it's not that w- widely seen. But um, at least not you know by, by our generation. But um, I would recommend anyone see it because it's just it's just roiling with <laughs> all this yeah. stuff that you know is is got to be uh uh anathema to the studios you know but it made it through the code because everything's under the surface you know all the right. stuff about him cheating and him uh possibly being uh having uh committed vehicular manslaughter and that's a whole other part of the movie oh, all right. <laughs> um, and then him being gay and yeah. all this anti anti studio stuff which i mean that's Something we should be clear. Be, I, I said earlier, but we should clarify that the Hayes Code was the studios policing themselves. It was, it was right. not. I mean, Joseph Breen influence from the Catholic. Yeah, uh, Joseph Breen was yeah. yeah represented the Catholic Church, but this was at the end of the day, it was it was the studios. Right. So it's it's just all the more fascinating to me that this movie, The Big Knife, even got made, and I think everyone right. should see it. Yeah. Um, yeah. To actually uh, to uh, go back to. The, the depiction of, of uh, homosexuality. Uh, one of my favorite films, and of course one that is widely seen, is uh, Maltese Falcon. Oh, yeah. And Joel Cairo, uh, played wonderfully by Peter Lorre. Uh-huh. Just in the book, uh, when he is introduced, uh, Sam Spade's secretary comes in and just says, this guy's queer. Like, <laughs> yeah. like, I don't know if it's meant to be said that boldly, but that, like... It's just said, you yeah. know, and then of course, the, but the character is much the same. Um, whereas in the film, I mean, the 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 character is very fashion conscious. Um, yeah. But also, when he walks in, uh, well, uh, the secretary hands uh, Spade Joel Cairo's business card. I don't know why Joel Cairo would have a business card because he's just a thief. Why does he? That's that's all right. But like <laughs> anyway, so he looks. And it, and it says Joel Cairo, and then he smells it, and and then the secretary is just like gardenias, like <laughs> it's just like wow, this guy's even this guy's card smells a little flowery, um, and just and stuff like that. Now, when I first saw, when I first saw the movie, um, you know, I was probably twelve or thirteen, and by that time, like if you know, I, if a character, the movies that I saw were made in the nineties, and uh-huh. if a character was gay, people would say it. Yeah. And so at the time, I'm like, what does that have to do with anything? I mean, don't get me wrong. It's very quirky. Um, <laughs> and if anybody would have a Gardenia-scented business card, it would be a character played by Peter Lorre. <laughs> but it's like, why did they do that? But now I know that it, it was just, you know, speaking, it was it was like a code between the filmmakers and the audience. It's like, okay, we all know what this means, right? <laughs> okay, just making sure. Because I can't say what's in the book. So just Gardenias, you get it. Um you know, and it's just, but, but frankly, I think that's, that improves it. It really makes, yeah. you know, just cause that's such an interesting touch that like this guy has a scented business card. Um, so should we start talking about the end of the code or do you have well, more? Well, what, 
we should mention that, and as a as a way of uh, kind of piggybacking on what you said, that yes, this was Hollywood enforced. They they did it themselves, which means that there were some films that were not approved but still released. And yeah, I unfortunately at the moment I can't think of any. I'm sorry. Well, I uh, think man with the golden arm. Man with the golden arm. Thank you. Is yeah, Preminger one. did a lot of them. Advise and Consent, which is yeah. a great movie that I really like. Um, Anatomy of a Murder. Anatomy has, of a Murder, thank uh, you. That, yeah, we talked about rape earlier. That's yeah. It's very explicit in Anatomy of a Murder. That that's, yeah. Um, and yeah, Man with the Golden Arm is a guy, It's about a heroin junkie, and it's stated very clearly in the Hayes Code that drug use is not to be shown. Yeah. And, and it's, yeah, it's, there's no clever sort of ducking around the issue. Frank Sinatra plays a fucking heroin junkie yeah. in The Man with the Golden Arm. But... Well, I can talk about these films getting released because um, what sort of happened is, well, A, the Hays Code had been around for, you know, since 1930, Mm -hmm. and this is like getting into the 60s for like 30 years, and it hadn't really changed, whereas the social mores had. Yeah. So while at the end of the 20s, there might have been a social, like, public outcry for this kind of policing. Mm-hmm. By the 60s, the public had kind of moved on and was kind of against the Hayes Code, but it was yeah. still being enforced because it was run by the crazy Catholics. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, uh, so, there were films, yeah, the, when when films would get released, um, they would be, these kind of films, they would be seen, largely, mm-hmm. because people were hungry for this kind of stuff. Yeah. And, what happened is a couple things happened at once. Um, foreign films started making it here, yeah. which were not subject to the Hayes Code. And also, the uh, studios were sort of busted on antitrust laws. Right. Because uh, what happened, it, it's, this is straight out of my like history of film 101 in film class. I'm going to be like, Mm-hmm. Quoting my teacher verbatim, but there's a uh, vertical integration, yeah. which in the 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 filmmakers or the studios, they they owned everything from the bottom up. They yeah. owned the stars. They were like under contract. They made the films. They distributed the films, and they owned the theaters in which the films were shown. Right. Uh, that was eventually seen to violate trust laws, and it was busted up. So the studios weren't owning the theaters anymore. So they didn't have. They couldn't decide what movies to show, right. so they couldn't keep unapproved movies out of the theaters, right. and they couldn't keep these foreign films out of the theaters because they were independently owned. And the owners of the theaters knew that if I show, you know, this Bergman film with a nude sex scene in it, right. I'm going to make a lot of money. Yeah. So that's so uh, yeah. There's and then TV also. I mean, like TV was even more regulated than film. Yeah. And the the mentality was just like. Yeah, if I wanted to see this, I can just stay home and watch television. And yeah. so all of us so all of a sudden so when you Yeah, yeah, I should have mentioned that first. Go ahead. Yeah. So like ultimately one could make the argument that when it that what it comes down to is money. That it's yeah. like, uh, money is not in the Hayes Code anymore. Sorry, Catholics. We got we gotta make some money. Yeah, because you see, even before it sort of completely fell apart in the sixties yeah. and the and the MPAA ratings board was established. Yeah. Um you can see it loosening starting in the late fifties and yeah. into the into sixties the because they're trying to compete with right. that they're trying to say this is you know because we talk about or everyone knows that they introduced widescreen like three d and all this stuff to try and get people yeah. away to say this is bigger than t v but that, this is another more subtle way they did it is to make the films a little less safe, you yeah. know, and so that's why you've got like uh who's afraid of Virginia Wolf is a great example right. like there's there's 
There, there, I mean, they took some stuff out from the play, but there's stuff that's in that movie that would not have been allowed on it, like just things yeah, that are said before, that, yeah, yeah no would way. not have been allowed to be said. So that's when it starts to crumble, and yeah. it's just sort of the, those are the cracks, and then the American public starts sort of sort of starts digging away at the cracks until the whole thing crumbles. Yeah, uh, because they they had moved on and the code had not. Yeah. Um, and so I guess that's that's actually a pretty good ending point, which is nice because we're uh, at the end here. But uh, but yeah, it it really is. Uh, it's interesting to to go back uh, to use an example that that we we briefly mentioned. Um, one of the uh, I mean, of course, I'm, I'm about to speak out against the Hayes Code. I know, I know. <laughs> I'm I'm cutting my 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 throat here. Um, if you haven't seen Anatomy of a Murder which we mentioned on episode 20, which is no longer available. Sorry. Um, <laughs> the, uh, it's all about, it's, uh, I mean, it's about rape, it's about murder, and because it's a court case, everything, you know, Preminger felt that everything should be said out loud. You know, everything, we're not going to tiptoe around it. And his mentality, aside from just, you know, liking, he liked, liked to provoke people, uh-huh. aside from that, um, you know, it's the mentality of like, yeah, these are big issues, and we can't we can't treat the audience like children anymore because yeah. these things happen by some of the people that are seeing these films. You know, like if we if we make it seem you know it's like if we tiptoe tiptoe around the issue of rape, then people may not actually some people may not catch it, and some people may not even think it's going on. We need to make it clear that yes, this is something that is happening. Yeah, and and I you know when I watch Anatomy of a Murder because you know it's when I saw it, I was still in high school, and I thought of it. Oh, it's an old black and white film, and I like this. I like Jimmy Stewart and George C. Scott. I'll throw, I'll throw it in, and it was so refreshing. And advising consent, much the same. It's, it's very refreshing the way it actually approaches. It approaches adult concepts in an adult way, and, and that, and I guess one of the reasons, and that's that's, ultimately for for the good that the Hayes Code did in an artistic way and cause like filmmakers to figure out a way around it or take advantage of it um you know it, it's uh, it's it, i'm so happy that it's gone because yeah because we, we talk about how you're talking about an anatomy of murder and we, we you know i talk we think it's we talk about how it's clever that they essentially snuck rape into gone with the wind but it also right. kind of made rape a little too palatable which is right in the end you know it, yeah so in the end it's 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 clever and fun what these filmmakers did, and some really great films came out of it. But yeah, uh, if if art is truth, then we then you know filmmakers owe it to their audiences to be more like Otto, Otto Preminger. There you go. Um, and of course, if you as I said before, if you want a good example of what film would be like if the Hayes Code was still around, not a, not completely, but uh, just go and watch some Christian films. Fire yeah. uh, Fireproof just recently came out. <laughs> um, but anyway, so um, so yeah, uh, thanks everybody for for listening uh, to this episode. Hopefully, you found it uh, informative uh, and interesting. And hopefully, um, you weren't too bored if you already knew everything we talked about. Yeah, sorry. Um, <laughs> but uh, you can uh, you can email David at uh, David at battleshippretension dot com. You can email me at Tyler at battleshippretension dot com. Um, and if you email me and I haven't gotten back to you yet, because I'm usually very good about it, it's because I just keep forgetting that I have that email address. Yeah, yeah, we're still <laughs> we're still working the kinks out and by uh by that I of course mean I'm lecturing David on how to make it work. Um <laughs> but uh, uh go ahead and leave us a, a nice review on iTunes and uh yeah, is there anything else that I'm forgetting? Uh there's the donation button or That's donate button. Yeah. 
I can't speak today, can I? <laughs> you had two 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 chances. <laughs> you can you, you messed them both up. <laughs> yeah, you can go do a donate on the, <laughs> on the page. <laughs> um, uh, uh, and yeah, yeah. Uh, good reviews on iTunes always help us. Also, subscribe if you're just yeah. If you're just, it doesn't it doesn't hurt to subscribe. Right. You can right. just get rid of it. Yeah. After you're you know you don't have to keep them all on your computer. <laughs> I don't know why I have to explain this to you people. <laughs> Oh, so my. yeah, okay. Go, yeah, do, so do a donate, do a subscribe, <laughs> do a review. Don't do crime. <laughs> Don't do crime if you can't do time. <laughs> um, all right. So, uh, so everybody, thanks for listening, and uh, we'll get you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.